This morning we begin the very last chapter of Luke, Luke 24. And our text this morning are verses 1 through 12. It is a very familiar passage, I dare say, to many of us. You may be used to hearing this passage preached when it is warmer out. But it is at the center of the gospel. The center of who Jesus is and what he has done. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Luke 24, beginning at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. Teach us of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his glory, of his work. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The gospel is good news. And the main event in God's redemptive plan is the resurrection. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that you must believe in the resurrection to be saved. It has been the hope not only of God's people now, but of God's people throughout all the ages. It was Abraham's hope that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. It was the hope of the patriarch Job as he declared that he will yet in his flesh see his Redeemer. It was the hope of Moses, the hope of David, the hope of Isaiah and all of the prophets. It is at the core of the gospel. It gives meaning to the life and death 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. I dare say it is impossible to overemphasize the resurrection. It is what makes all the difference, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we come to the passage in Luke 24, where Dr. Luke describes for us, as each of the gospel writers do, the resurrection of Jesus. And I would like us to look at three things in this text. First, I would like us to see the need for the resurrection. The need for the resurrection both for those on that day and for us today. Secondly, when we look at the resurrection, it is necessary to see the proof of the resurrection. That it is something that is a true fact to be believed. Christianity is grounded in history. And then thirdly, we see the blessings of the resurrection. The blessings that flow to us because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Need, proof, and blessings. Let's begin then by looking at the need for the resurrection. Luke starts by telling us that on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women go to the tomb with the spices that they had prepared. Now, when we think about these women, we have to understand where their mental state is and what they have seen and what they have experienced. Because it helps us to understand the need for the resurrection for those who are confused and hopeless. Now, you need to put yourself in their place. They don't know the rest of the story. They did not wake up on this morning and say, Oh, what a lovely Easter morning. They didn't get dressed in their finery. They weren't in wonderful moods. No, instead, they had watched Jesus die. The women had been with Jesus the entirety of the time. They alone had remained at the cross. They alone had gone to the tomb. They alone had seen his body wrapped. They had seen the stone rolled in front of the tomb. And now, what they wanted to do was to honor Jesus in death. Because, of course, they were unable to do this properly earlier. Providence had intervened. The Sabbath day was approaching, and as the sun went down, there was no work to be done. And so they had to have Jesus put in the tomb, but they could not complete the work. And then they had to wait the entirety of the next day. Can you imagine what that must have been like? For them to spend the whole of the next day wanting to be with their Lord, wanting to honor Him, and not being able to. This is what providence had brought to them. And now, because of the Sabbath, they come back to the tomb. This teaches us immediately something about providence. How many times have you wondered why certain things happen? Things that seem awful or out of place or unnecessary. This certainly would have seemed like this to the women. But you have to understand that God and His kind providence is always perfect. You see, they were kept from completing the job that they wanted to complete. They were kept in a state of sorrow. But all of that was in preparing for them to return on this morning. If they had been able to finish the job on Friday, they would not be returning on Sunday. 
Do you see how God reaches into our lives for His own purposes and for our good? And so these women get up and they set off very early. It is dawn. It is still dusk. There are still shadows. It's that time of morning when you're not sure, is it still night and can I go back to sleep? Or is it dawn and I have to get up and start to do things? You see, it's interesting. Each of the gospel writers describes this time a little bit differently based on perspective. For John, it's still dark. For Luke, it is early dawn. For Matthew and Mark, the light is just beginning to break. It is that period of time that separates the night from the day. And there's a a relatively large group of these women who have followed Jesus from Galilee. Some of them are named. Luke tells us of two of them, of Mary Magdalene and of Mary, the other Mary. They are the youngest of the group, it seems. For they all go in the same direction. They're all described, some others named, some not, by various gospel writers. But at the forefront appear to be the two Marys. And from John's account, it seems that Mary Magdalene is the one who comes to the tomb at the very beginning. She is the first one at the tomb, and she looks and sees the stone rolled away. Now imagine this. They're going off in the cold, damp morning air. They're not going to fix anything. They're not going to make anything better. All they're hoping to do is to pour spices upon the dead body of Jesus. And in fact, they don't even know how they're going to be able to do that. Mark tells us in chapter 16 that they're having a conversation as they go. And they say, we want to go to the tomb. We want to do this. But how are we going to roll the stone away? They're not sure how this is going to happen. They are depressed And they are in mourning. They don't know what to expect. They are confused and without hope. They come to the tomb and they see exactly what they do not expect. Look at verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now notice how Luke does this. I, I never cease to be amazed at how wonderful a historian Luke is. Dr. Luke gives us just the facts here, doesn't he? There's really no drama in Luke's account. We don't read of the angels rolling away the stone. We don't read yet of the dazzling brightness of the angels as we do in the other gospel writers. Luke gives us just the account of the facts. There's no drama yet at all. And they come up and they see the stone rolled away and they see that Jesus' body is gone. Now again, you need to put yourself in their mindset. This is not a cause for rejoicing. The first thing they think is not that Jesus is risen. The first thing that they think is that his body has been stolen and it is a cause for yet more grief. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene is crying because of this because she says, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. They are confused. Jesus' body is gone. Luke tells us that they are perplexed. They have no way of getting their arms around this situation. And then they see these angels. 
and they don't know what to make of them. They don't know why they're here or what is going on. And you see, the problem is, is that they have allowed their circumstances to rule over themselves. They had known and trusted Jesus, hadn't they? Jesus had spoken to them of his death, but also of his resurrection. But they'd forgotten that. So for them, they are overwhelmed by grief and sorrow and they are allowing their own circumstances to dictate their faith. This is a warning for you and for me. You see, if we're not careful, we allow our circumstances to take control of our lives. We have relationships that are broken. We have needs that are unmet. We don't know how we're going to pay for certain things. We don't know how our job will work out. We're worried about the circumstances of our country and of the world. And we allow ourselves to fold in upon ourselves. To allow what is happening in our circumstances to dictate how we will act and think and hope. They'd forgotten what Jesus had said. And so what's very interesting is is that the angels remind them. Do you see this? Why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, what are you doing, the angels say. You should not be looking for Jesus here. You should know that he wouldn't be here. Well, how would that be? Don't you remember what he told you? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. You saw that. But he also said that he would rise on the third day. Isn't that part true also? You see, they need to be corrected by God's word. They need to be taken out of their own confusion and self-interest. And this is so often true of you and of me. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but life gets busy, doesn't it? Life gets hectic. Life gets sorrowful. And we tend to focus upon the problems and circumstances rather than on the promises of our Lord. But Luke gives us a very little hint here that there is more going on. It's like the light cracking through the tomb. Do you see what he says? He says in verse 3, They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke is declaring here that Jesus is Lord, that he is risen. After all, later Peter will preach and say that God made this same Jesus Christ and Lord. Jesus is risen. But it's not just the women who need the resurrection. (coughs) It's also the men. If the women are confused and hopeless, the men are defeated and afraid. Now you have to remember, there is no victorious Easter morning expected. While the women are preparing, what are the men doing? The disciples are hiding. They're hiding away. They're probably afraid for themselves that someone would come and arrest them and put them to death. You see, for them, it's all over. There's no more kingdom coming. All of their hopes were on Jesus. And we say amen to that. 
But the problem is they can't see past the cross. All of their hopes are on Jesus and now all of their hopes are dashed. Do you know what that feels like? I can't think of anything worse than having something of a high expectation and then it is just taken away. The rug pulled out from under you, as it were. You expect good things to happen. You're ready for great things to come. And then all of a sudden, it's all gone. You wish it had never been offered to you in the first place, right? You see, the problem is, the disciples can only see Jesus in their own context. They can't imagine what Jesus could do. And they've forgotten his word. Just like the women. They are defeated and afraid. But at the core there's something even more. A greater need for the resurrection. It is what makes us confused and hopeless. And makes us defeated and afraid. And that is being trapped in our sin. You see, apart from Jesus, we are lost. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. And this is not a new concept in the New Testament. The prophet Ezekiel told the Israelites that the soul who sins shall die. It's the experience that we understand and see all the time, don't we? That death reigns everywhere. Death is no respecter of persons. The young and the old die. The rich and the poor die. From the time of Adam... From the time of our first parents' first sin, death has reigned over all of the world. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's what we see everywhere around us, isn't it? It's the universal truth of our existence. I saw this yesterday as I attended a funeral. A funeral is an opportunity not just to look at the one who is in the coffin, but to look at the coffin and to wonder, when will I be in the coffin? Death will come. Is there no hope? In order to be freed from death, we have to be freed from sin, but everywhere around us we see sin flourishing. We see sin Everywhere, things are not as they should be. There is conflict, there is hatred, there is misunderstanding. Everywhere around us, we live in misery and in want. Can the news of the world ever get hope to us? If you're like me, I don't even want to turn on the news. I wonder which murder or robbery or attack or disaster I will see next. If we are to have hope, we must be freed from the power of sin. We can only have hope from outside of ourselves. This is what the resurrection is. The resurrection is proof that Jesus has conquered sin. And it gives us hope that we can be no longer trapped. We have a need for the resurrection to get out from under the burden of sin. The resurrection is a true historical fact. And as we see here, this story gives us proof of the resurrection. 
You know, amazingly, there are so many who are always trying to disprove the fact of the resurrection. Those who are opposed to Jesus Christ know that unlike all of the other philosophies and theologies and religions of the world, that Christianity rests upon historical fact. That God became man. That He lived a perfect life. That He died an atoning death and that He rose again. So in order to combat this, they come up with all kinds of theories. There's the the theory that Jesus was not dead. I love this one. Where Jesus hangs on the cross for hours. And then to make sure he's dead, they pierce him with a spear and blood and water flow out from him. And they take him down off the cross and wrap him in burial clothes and put him in the tomb and put a stone in front of it. And somehow Jesus wakes up, neatly takes off his clothes and pushes the stone from the other side away. I don't know about you, but I couldn't push a stone like that if I had the flu. And they expect Jesus to walk as if nothing had happened after hanging on the cross. Others say, no, 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 the answer is they went to the wrong tomb. That's why the tomb was empty. Okay, so the women went to the wrong tomb, and the soldiers went to the wrong tomb, and the apostles went to the wrong tomb. And if this were true, and you were a member of the Sanhedrin, what would you do to prove that this was a lie? I don't know, maybe go to the right tomb and pull Jesus' body out? But of course they don't do that. And then of course there's the theory that Jesus' body was stolen. But see, this is here where the authorities help to prove to us that the resurrection is true. The Sanhedrin do us a favor. Because see, they are worried about someone stealing the body. It's great irony here that the women and the apostles forget Jesus' words. But the Pharisees don't. You know that? Matthew gives us the account of this in chapter 27. He says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they say, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. The great irony here is, is that the unbelievers remember God's word. And so what they do is they want every precaution to be taken to avoid the body being stolen. They get Pilate to put a stone in front of the tomb. And not just a stone, but the royal imperial seal on that stone. So that it cannot be moved and put back. And then they have guards put in front. Do you see what they're doing? They're ensuring that the theory that the body was stolen is untrue. They did everything they could and inadvertently are proving the resurrection. You see, they made all these preparations. Would the guard be in on the plot? Would they somehow have let the apostles come in and steal the body? That's ridiculous. We're talking about soldiers here. Their own lives would be at risk for falling asleep on the job. We hear this also from Matthew, where the priests tell the soldiers to say they fell asleep and someone stole the body. And they have to promise them to go to bat with them with Pilate. Because otherwise they could be put to death. The interesting thing here is the great solution to a false resurrection is simply to do what? To produce the body. 
but no one ever produces the body. And one of the things we know is that no one ever argues against the empty tomb. They never say the tomb wasn't empty. All they are trying to do is to distract you from the main point. That's what all of these theories are. They're trying to distract you from the great proof of what has happened and that the tomb is empty. They want you to look everywhere but the tomb. This is the way of the world. Another example of this that we see is with the theory of evolution. Have you ever noticed how people want to prove the theory of evolution? They want to talk about how this bird looks a little bit like this fish. And come over here and look at this fossil record. And let me show you this chart about millions and millions and millions of years. All of that is a sideshow. How does something come from nothing? Answer me that, and you've got evolution. How does logic and reason come from illogic? Answer that substantial epistemological question, and then we'll start to talk about the fossil record. Until you can tell me something comes from nothing, don't just say millions and millions of years over and over again. It's a distracting tactic. That's what they're doing here with the resurrection. Look anywhere but the tomb. It's as if the great and powerful Oz is trying to get you to look away from the curtain. But we know the truth. Matthew tells us that this is a supernatural event. He describes it as the angels coming down in bright raiment and moving away the stone. They're moving away the stone. Remember, not so Jesus can get out. So that believers can get in. Jesus is not entrapped in the tomb. We will see him at other points after the resurrection entering rooms through walls, in his glorified body. But the tomb must be opened because we must be able to go into the tomb to look and to see. We also see proof of the resurrection in the attitude of the disciples. You see, somehow the naysayers would have you believe that this ragtag group of fishermen, ex-tax collectors, and others had this great conspiracy plan to fool Caesar's government, and everyone in Palestine. They've mapped this out perfectly, that somehow they will have this conspiracy to fake Jesus' resurrection. But there's one fundamental problem with that. They're not plotting the next plan. They're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. They're not trying to do great and glorious things. Everything is against them. They're worried for their own lives. The interesting thing is Luke tells us a detail that to us seems odd and almost puts the disciples in a very bad light. Do you see it in verse 11? It's when the women come to speak to the disciples. Now you can imagine this. They've talked to angels. They've seen the empty tomb. And now they're all coming to talk to the disciples a mile a minute. This is like when something wonderful happens and you have young children. And you can't hear anything that's being said because they're all talking at once over top of each other. Right? That's what's going on here. They've got the same story, but it's in a different cadence. And how do the 
disciples respond. These great conspirators, these ones who are going to fool the Roman Empire, they look at the women and they say, y'all are crazy. Seriously. Do you see Luke say that? Luke tells us in verse 11, he says, these words seem to them to be an idle tale. The word there for idle tale also means nonsense. It's actually a term used in other Greek texts to describe the ravings of someone lost in a fever. Have you ever talked to someone that's just coming out of anesthesia? That's fun, isn't it? Better if you can film it. Because they'll say all kinds of things that make no sense at all. That's what the women seem like to the disciples. You see, this looks bad for the disciples, but for the proof of the resurrection, it must be true. They're not plotting anything. They don't even believe it's true, let alone plot to deceive others. Some will claim that the apostles had a mass hallucination as if all of them wanted so bad to believe in Jesus' resurrection that they all hallucinated that at the same time. Now, apart from the fact that that's also nonsense, otherwise my family's going to go home and we're going to have a mass hallucination that we're going to Italy for vacation and show up there. But apart from that, They're not even expecting this to happen. They don't believe it when it happens. And actually, the only picture we get of anyone individually is of Peter. Peter, in verse 12, runs, stoops in the tomb, and he goes home marveling. I sort of picture this in my mind's eye as Peter walking home in sort of a daze with his mouth open. He's traumatized. He's trying to work through the concept that Jesus isn't there? And did he rise? And what does this mean? You see, this all hits them right at the moment. This is proof that there was no plot of the resurrection. But more important than this, most important of all, is the proof that comes from the assurance of God's word. You see, the disciples should have known this. Jesus had prepared them for it. This is why the angels wonder why they're at the tomb looking for Jesus. You see, the assumption should be that Jesus is alive, just like he said. How can it be? How could you expect Jesus to be alive after you watched him die? You expect him to be alive not because you know crucifixion, and medical records, not because you're looking at a tomb. No, you should know it because Jesus has told you in His Word. He says it in Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says it again in Luke 18. After flogging Him, they will kill Him and on the third day He will rise. Jesus has given them his word, and that should be sufficient proof of the resurrection. There's something very interesting about Luke's account of the resurrection. Do you notice what is missing? What is not to be found in verses 1 through 12? It's Jesus. Jesus isn't there, but his word is. 
You see, we understand and we know the proof of the resurrection not because we can travel back in time and look into an empty tomb and find the Lord Jesus Christ and put our fingers in His hands and in His feet, but because we have the promise of His Word and that will never change and will always be true. That is the greatest proof of the resurrection and it is just as great, greater a proof that we have today as that Peter had that morning. Because God's word never changes. This is what God does so often in our lives. He goes before us with his word and his promises. And then when we wander off, messing up, going to the wrong place, God is there with his word pointing us back to where we need to be. That's exactly what's happening here. The angels are there with the word of God saying, you should not be looking here. Do you not remember what he said? And this is how the word of God works in our lives. When we don't have the word of God in our focus, everything is perplexing and seems out of place. Doesn't it? We're not sure how to make decisions about raising children, about marriage, about our job, about how to spend our money, about how to treat others. But when we have the Word of God in our focus, when we are looking at the promises of God's Word, when we are seeking to be taught by God's Word, then everything falls into place. That's exactly what happens here. The women hear and they remember. And everything changes. They go from the most depressed you could possibly be to acting like schoolgirls. The disciples will go from those who are in hiding and afraid and thinking that Jesus is gone and the kingdom will never return, to seeking to usher in the kingdom. This is what happens when we let the word of God take hold of our lives. Thirdly and finally this morning, we see the blessings that God gives to us in the resurrection. The first is witness. We see a great change that comes immediately Upon the resurrection. Here we have women who are sort of shuffling their feet, somberly going to a post funeral. And then when they experience the resurrection, they remember Jesus' words and now they are energized. And what do they do? They cannot help but go and tell others the good news. Their life has turned around 180 degrees. They run. Imagine the scene here. They're tripping over each other, trying to be the first to tell the apostles what is going on. But notice this. They're not worried if someone thinks their account is believable. They don't think it's believable. They're not worried about what the apostles will think of them. This news is so good that they must share it. This is what the resurrection brings to the Christian. You have good news. Good news that Jesus lives. Good news that Jesus has died, paid for sin, and lives. You need not worry about if others think you are believable. You need not worry about what others think about you. You are called to declare it in your lives and from the rooftops. They have to do this. 
Because the news is so good. Everything has changed. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And now there is finally great hope. How does the news of the resurrection affect you? Do you know that the resurrection is the purpose behind the incarnation? You know, this time of year, many people will enjoy a distant baby Jesus. But the purpose for the incarnation is not to amuse us. The purpose for the incarnation is so that Jesus might fulfill the work that the Father had given to him and that he might be declared the Son of God with glory and power, Paul tells us in Romans 1. The resurrection puts its claim on us. It reminds us of our own mortality. It reminds us of how we can have hope and that hope must be linked to Jesus. Unless Jesus rises, we will not rise. Our hope is linked to Jesus. The second blessing that we get from the resurrection is the forgiveness of sins. That the work of Jesus is completed. This goes back to that age-old problem. Why is there death? There is death, the Bible tells us, because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and death entered in. James puts it this way. He says that desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that for as by a man came death, as in Adam all die. You see, this is the problem we all face. We face death because of sin. We need the forgiveness of sins. That is the reason for the cross. And the resurrection shows the victory of Jesus over sin. Jesus' resurrection tells us that we can be right with God. Do you lie awake in bed some nights wondering If God really can forgive you for what you've done. You need to look to the empty tomb. Jesus' resurrection shows that he has conquered sin. That those who trust in him have their sins forgiven. There is nothing left to do. He has done it all. He has broken the barrier of death and brought life to light. Christian, does the resurrection thrill your soul to know you are free from sin? Finally, a blessing of the resurrection is resurrection itself. For you see, the resurrection deals not only with our past, it not only gives meaning to our future, but to our present, it secures our future as well. It opens up The doorway to life with God. The Bible is clear that death is not the end. But the resurrection gives us hope that we will live because He lives. That's why it is at the centerpiece of the gospel message. Do you see how over and over again in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore the resurrection of believers is preached over and over again as a tandem. We see it in Acts chapter 3, chapter 4, the sermon in Acts chapter 13. Paul writes of it in Galatians 1 and in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8. 
Colossians 2 lays it out, and Peter writes of it in 1 Peter 1. Over and over again, we read of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus and how that gives us life, and we rise. It's at the core of the gospel. When Paul summarizes the gospel in few words, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Only Christ gives the hope of a bodily resurrection. How can you have that hope? You can have that hope just like the disciples. See the empty tomb. Meet Jesus. And believe the word of God. That is how you will have hope for yourself to be with your Savior forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the resurrection in which you have declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power, the one who has atoned for sin, the one who ever lives and who gives life. Lord, we ask this morning that you would point us toward the empty tomb, that we would look in and have great hope, no matter what our circumstances are, hope that comes from the cry that Jesus is risen. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.